morning, everyone. Welcome to Western Hills. Glad you're here to worship with us this morning. Let's stand and sing together. I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw darkness run for cover. But the miracle that I just can't get over, my name is registered in Signs and wonders, and I have resurrection power. Still, the miracle that I just can't get over. My name is registered in heaven. My praise belongs to you forever. This is my testimony from death to life. Cause grace rewrote my story I'll testify by Jesus Christ the righteous I'm justified this is my testimony this is my testimony in water, sing the praises of the Spirit, Son and Father, our God will finish what He started, yes our God will finish what He started.
So yes, we concluded our 2022 uh, Upward Soccer season. Um, and so a few highlights from that season, as you saw, we had 220 players come out um, to participate in that. And then an interesting kind of data point that I like to get over the last few years is on our registration forms, we ask them to just note if they have any sort of church affiliation, if they're connected to any sort of faith community. Um, and then I look to see who isn't by chance. And of our 220 players, about 30% of those listed no sort of church affiliation. Um, and so what that tells us is that opportunities like this are just ripe for us as a church to connect with people who maybe don't know Jesus, or at very least aren't connected to um, a faith community. And so um, what's exciting is throughout this soccer season, these kiddos have gotten to hear a little bit about who Jesus is um, through their coaches, through the other people that they interact with. And so um, this is... I mean, this is why we do Upward, right? Um, and I first just want to say thank you um, to you guys as a church, but also more specifically um, to all the volunteers that came out to help make it happen. And so I would just invite you guys to give a, them a round of applause. Um, because it doesn't happen without them, right? You saw there's 50 plus volunteers involved from concession stand to coaches, to referees, to behind the scenes. Um, and I would also like to say a special thank you to um, our director of soccer, Aaron Bivens, to kind of orchestrate and direct all of that. Um, he's not in service right now, but um, he'll be able to see this online. And so um, what's exciting about this, we, while we've closed out the soccer season, um, Upward continues for us and we are actually now in the process of gearing up for our basketball season in the winter. Um, and so here, November 1st, registrations will be opening for that. Um, and so if you're sitting here um, and you see this opportunity that we have as a church to engage and rub shoulders with people who maybe don't know Jesus, um, we would love to help you get plugged into that. If you got kiddos who wanna play, um, we would love to help you get them registered um, when that opens up. And so we're, we're gonna keep talking about our upward basketball season as we approach that um, to, to make specific asks, but I would encourage you and challenge you to already be praying for, okay, what, what might my role, my part in that be? Um, is it helping out in the concession stand? Um, is it coaching? Is it refing? Um, whatever it may be, already be praying about it so that when we launch that season and start putting the pieces in place, um, you might be ready and willing right there. So thank you again for being a church that um, allows us to do programs like this and partner with other churches in Topeka um, to have an impact for the gospel through sports. So um, shifting gears just a little bit before we... Um, return to singing. In your seats, there's these blue cards. Um, if you're here week in, week out, you see these. Um, these are for a few things. First off, if you are a guest with us, um, we would love to know that you're worshiping with us this morning. So you can fill this out, just a little bit of info about yourself, drop it in a connection kiosk, or take it down to a south lobby on your way out, hand it to one of our volunteers and get a little goodie bag out of it. Um, it's just a way for us to connect with you and know who's joining us week in and week out. If you're a regular with us, this is how you can request prayer, um, connect with us in different ways through connect group, serving ministries, such as Upward, um, and a number of different ways. So if you're a regular with us, these cards can be helpful to you as well. And there's also a digital version if you're online with us. So um, excited for what God is doing through things like Upward and um, what he's gonna do this morning as well. So let me pray for us and then we will continue in worship. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we get through uh, a ministry like Upward to, to have an impact in Topeka um, in the lives of these kiddos um, through something like soccer and some things like basketball. And so um, we're thankful for the season we just concluded. And we pray that if there's any sort of curiosity about you that's been piqued um, throughout the course of this season, um, that those people would have the courage to take that step and connect with someone, um, whether it's their coach or someone they met throughout the season or a church they know of. And so we just ask that you would nudge them a little bit and lead them into that um, and change lives through it. So we look ahead to the basketball season. We just ask your blessing over all the preparations for that um, as, we, as we approach that. And then lastly, we just pray for a blessing over this morning as we continue in worship and um, praising you. We just pray that you would transform us to look more and more like you as we leave these walls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.
Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are the one who can. God, you are the one who can turn those graves into gardens, those bones into armies, those seas into highways. And God, this morning as we gather together, God, we know that you're here with us. You are living among us and inside us.
Well, good morning. All the text, checking on my soul last night. Appreciate all the volunteers that helped with that. Uh, I did have been in contact with Parker Dane. So uh, for those of you that don't know, Parker Dane was for years our resident Tennessee fan. And uh, for 15 years, uh, I've basically, this is how he felt for 15 years. I just can't, how did he even come to work? I mean, I don't even know. So I really feel bad about all the mean things I've said about, well, I don't want to go too far. I mean, it's one game. Anyway, uh, I made it, so that was good. Uh, And one more thing before we kind of get into the message. Tomorrow night is lead night. Uh, This is like one of my favorite nights. This is my favorite night. This is where we get all our leaders and volunteers that serve, and we serve them a steak dinner. And um, you haven't had that one yet, Doug? Uh, It might be sandwiches. Uh, Anyway, and we just really enjoy each other's company. Uh, We get to hear uh, about 30 minutes just about vision and direction, and then we break down into our ministry teams. And if you are interested in serving a place, lead night's a great night to show up. You get to meet all of our ministry team leaders. You get to hang out with them. It's also a great place to meet new people uh, as our ministry teams get to hang out. So that's tomorrow night. You can sign up in the church app on that. Um, And then how many of you this week watched the Just 60 Seconds Devo? It was 81 seconds. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so in the 60-second update, it happens all the time. It's anyway, in the 60-second update, I asked you to be here next Sunday, and then I gave you October 30th as the date. And I was just doing that as a test to see how many of you would uh, catch that, and you all failed. No. Uh, anyway, so here's the deal. It's next Sunday. Next Sunday, I'm really asking folks if they can uh, to make uh, being here a priority. We are uh, landing the plane on this series, The Big Trip. But the real reason I really want you to do this is that um, next week, I'm going to teach a message that's kind of been in me for about a year. Uh, God's been working some stuff in me for about a year, and I haven't been able to give that message uh, because it's one of those things where God just was telling me, just wait, just wait, just wait. Uh, we went to Israel and like the last pieces of the puzzle of that message kind of fell into place for me. And it was like, okay, now, now I'm giving you the freedom to tell this message. And if you're wondering exactly what that is, I'm just going to give you a little sneak peek. Um, we had an opportunity to sit on the Temple Mount watching the Church of the Rock dome, the mosque there, where the temple used to be, and have a conversation with a Jewish Christ follower as well as a Palestinian Christ follower in Jerusalem in that place and listen to them walk through how they're trying to live out their faith in a very complicated, combative Uh, culturally diverse, politically crazy context and how they're trying to do this and and, and some of the things that they're having to wrestle with of centuries and centuries and centuries of things that that they grew up with and, and now they have this relationship with Christ and what does this look like in this context now and and, and to hear them tell their story and to hear them walk through the things that, that they're wrestling with and that they have to deal with on a daily basis, it, um, there's some things that we as American Christ followers need to listen to them about. We need to hear their story about what does it mean to live out a Christ-centered faith in a very polarizing, conflicted, confusing context. And so I'm really, really inviting you for next week. This week is gonna be kind of boring. Next week it's not. Okay, I'm just kidding. Um, well, no, this week is week three of the big trip. Uh, I, have, I went to college in West Texas, Abilene, Texas. Uh, followed Amy around, watching her play volleyball in some of the most romantic places on earth like Lubbock. Uh, plain view, yeah, I forgot, yeah, yeah, the, the wonderful, the wonderful panhandle of Texas. I have driven through Death Valley, Nevada. I've done that. I, I've even been to Garden City, Kansas. And of all of the vast experiences that I've had in the desert, nothing, absolutely nothing prepared me for Israel. 
This is the view of the desert in Israel. And if you're squinting really hard, trying to find anything green, keep looking. You will not find it. We spent an hour and a half in a bus and the only green thing we saw was a mile marker. If you would have blindfolded us, shook us around in that bus and said, welcome to the moon when we got off, we would have believed you. It was this incredibly desolate, I can't imagine wandering around in this place for 40 years. But this is, this is what happened. This is what happened, right? This is where the, the Israelites wandered for 40 years. And, and it is just incredible. Again, we started at the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, and we followed this highway all the way down to a place called En Gedi. And I know on the map that it says there's green there. That is a lie. There is no green there. There's nothing there. I mean, if they planted it, they have to, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Uh, we lived, finally get to a place called the En Gedi. The En, the en Gedi is located uh, on, the, on the middle northern end of the Dead Sea. Uh, and when you get to the En Gedi, all of a sudden you realize how important an oasis is. The En Gedi is a series of waterfalls uh, that come down from the mountain ridge. Uh, it's about seven or eight of them. And this is the only freshwater source for miles. And it creates this little oasis in the middle of, of this uh, place of desolation. Now, they have artifacts here dating all the way back to 4000 BC, but, but the En Gedi is actually mentioned in Scripture in a couple of places, okay? And probably the most prominent place that it's mentioned is in the story of David. Let me give you the background. So, King Saul is made the first king of Israel in 1021 BC. He immediately finds himself in a battle with the Philistines who occupy the coastal region. So immediately Israel and, Philistine, and the Philistines are at war and they meet in the Jezreel Valley. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And for 40 days as they square off, the Philistines would send their champion out into the middle of the valley and scream and proclaim, anyone want to fight? And for 40 days, the Israelis were like, we don't want none of that guy. On one particular day, the, their champion comes into the valley, makes his announcement, and there was a Judean shepherd who had gone to the front lines of the war to deliver supplies to the army. And when he heard the Philistine champion screaming in the valley, he was so upset. He went, today, that dude dies. He was, he, that, that, that dude dies today. How dare he insult the living God? And he gets so fired up about it that he goes and he runs out to meet him in war and he kills him with a slingshot. The Philistine giant was Goliath. The Judean shepherd was David. As David cuts off the head of Goliath, the Israelis spring forward and, they, and it's a, it, it, it springs forth a huge military victory for Israel. They defeat the Philistines. Now, what happens in the aftermath of that is David becomes this folk hero. His popularity in Israel just skyrockets. They write songs about him. They do miniseries about him. I mean, he is, he's on lunchboxes. He is the hero of Israel, okay? King Saul, on the other hand, not so much. Because remember, Saul heard this guy for 40 days and did nothing. Well, in order to kind of get in good graces with the public, Saul thinks, well, I'll just hire David and I'll put him on my staff. Like I'll make him a part of my staff. So he hires David, he makes him a part of his staff. David continues to win battles. He continues to grow in popularity and Saul loses his ever loving minds. He's so insecure as a leader. He's so, he, he, he's so threatened by David that he gets so upset at him one time, he tries to kill him and by throwing a spear at him in the middle of dinner one night. David takes his army and he flees. He runs away from Jerusalem, goes through the valley and hides at En Gedi. This is where he hides out. And there's all of these caves. There's all of these nooks and crannies. In fact, it's called the crags of the mountain goats is what it's called. And this story is in 1 Samuel 23 and 24. 
And so as David is hiding in these caves, Saul chases after him. Saul finds himself in En Gedi, and the scriptures tell us a very, uh, of a very poignant story. Saul says, as they're trying to find David in all of this caves and this wilderness, Saul has to go to the bathroom. So he finds a cave. He goes back into this cave. He takes off his robe to whatever. And as he does this, he happens to pick the cave that David and his mighty men are hiding in. And David's mighty men tells David, the Lord has delivered your enemy into your hands today. And David goes, yeah, not so fast. So David sneaks up, cuts off a portion of Saul's robe. Saul finishes, goes back to his army out in the, in the valley there. David waits till Saul's a good safe distance away, at least far enough away that he can't throw a spear. And David comes out on top of the cave and he goes, Saul, the Lord delivered you into my hands. I have proof. I have a corner of your robe that I cut off. And I could have killed you, but I didn't. So why are you doing this to our country? Why are you doing this? Why are you putting us in this kind of turmoil? And Saul is convicted and he quits chasing David. All of this happens at En Gedi. And we get to climb this whole, we get to climb through the waterfall. That's why I'm kind of a little wet because we get to climb through the waterfalls. And that waterfall that we're standing under, the spring is on top of that and makes this. Uh, Solomon writes about the En Gedi. Uh, he writes about it in Song of Songs in the first chapter. Uh, in chapter 14, or excuse me, chapter one, verse 14, Saul's lover calls, uh, sorry, Solomon's lover calls Solomon a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En Gedi. That's really sexy, by the way, if you don't really know what that, that means. In other words, it's, a, it's an oasis in the middle of the desert. It's a place of beauty that smells great in the, in the middle of this desert. So that's what it means. Um, so from En Gedi, it's just a quick five-mile little drive down the road to the Dead Sea, or at least where we were staying on the Dead Sea. We were actually staying in evaporation ponds that are filled in from the Dead Sea. Uh, the Dead Sea is the lowest point on land. It is 1,387 feet below sea level. And the Dead Sea is composed of 34% salt. Now, if you're having a hard time understanding exactly what that means, if you were to go to the ocean, the ocean is 3.4% salt. So the Dead Sea is 10 times saltier than the ocean. And because of this, because that makes the water so dense, you can do this at the Dead Sea. I know it doesn't look like much, but it was the most bizarre. That's 200 and something pounds. That's just floating, baby. Right? I mean, it is a crazy experience. Like, you, you see the pictures and you go, I, okay, that's cool. No, it's like zero gravity. It's like imagining this is what space travel must be like. This is what it felt like, right? What does this have to do with scriptures and your daily walk with Jesus? I have no idea, but it was one of the coolest experiences we had. And we also, it makes your skin so soft and buttery smooth when you, when you get out of this thing. Um, also, you do not want to get uh, any of that water in your mouth or your eyes or if you have any cuts, you might want to avoid this experience uh, because it feels like a thousand razor blades if you do. Uh, and they, have, they have actually have flushing stations on the shore for people who think they can swim in the Dead Sea. They quickly learn, no, 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 no. You can float, but you don't want to swim. So anyway, the Dead Sea, that was cool. Probably the, one of the highlights of the trip and especially the highlight of the desert experience was a place called Masada. Now, Masada is not in the scriptures, but it has a significant role when it comes to the identity and the ethos of Israel. Masada was a desert fortress built by Herod the Great in 31 BC, 31 BC. And this is a model of what this fortress looks like. This fortress is only has an elevation of around 480 feet. Of course, the problem is it starts from the sea floor. It starts from the floor where the Dead Sea is, which is at negative 1,000 feet. <laughs> so it's actually 2,000 vertical feet to the top of this fortress. 
And this fortress was built by Herod in this location for one of two reasons. He built it because he was insecure in his leadership. If the Jews ever revolted, his plan was to bring his family and his army to this place and, and to hide and to wait out until the Roman army came and rescued him. Or if the Roman army ever got tired of him being king, he was going to go to this place and hide out and wait until he's being rescued. It's completely uh, hard. You, could, you cannot get to it at all. It's only on this backside that they're vulnerable, and that's where all the, their defenses is. So this is Masada. This is the top of Masada. It is absolutely huge. Uh, it's, it's around 40 acres as of the size of this. They had stables. They had houses, bathhouses. They even had a synagogue on it. Um, and there's also what's called the North Palace. Now, this North Palace sits on the edge of this. It's three tiers. You can kind of see those tiers. This is the model. We actually got to walk through this three-tier palace by getting on that little bitty bridge going around the edge of the thing. And man, that was, I love that. That was absolutely great. Uh, not everyone in our group appreciated that hike as much as uh, Amy and I did. Uh, but we got to go around to the front of that. Um, and I think, what's our next slide? Great. So again, this is a view from the North Palace. So let me kind of explain a couple of things on why this is so important to our story and why we need to stop here for a few seconds. If you fast forward after the days of Jesus to around 66, 67 AD, Israel has decided it is going to go into full-fledged rebellion against Rome. It no longer wants to be a vassal of Rome. It wants its own independent nation. And when it decides to do this, a group of Jews called the Zealots, remember them? The Sakari, they take about 960 people with them. They flee Jerusalem and they go to Masada and they make fortifications to get ready for the onslaught of the Roman army that they know is going to come. In AD 70, Rome finally comes. And when Rome comes down through Israel, starting from the north and the Dan, all the way through the Jezreel Valleys, they destroy every single city they come in contact with. They do not leave a stone on top of another stone as they go through Capernaum, Chorazin, Magdala. When they get to Jerusalem, they level the temple. There's no more temple in AD 70. They totally destroy Jerusalem. And because Rome was sick and tired of these little Israeli little gnats, they were sick and tired of having to deal with conflict after conflict after conflict with them, they said, we're going to make an example of the Jewish nation so that any other nation under our rule will understand how serious we are about the peace of Rome. And so when they heard about Masada, they sent seven legions to Masada, 7,000 Roman soldiers. They get there around 71 AD, and they build a six and a half mile wall. That's this little bitty road. You see that little bitty road? That's got like a little stone fence on it now. They build this little bitty wall, and this little bitty Roman wall is 10 feet tall, about five feet wide, and they build this six and a half mile all the way around Masada for this purpose. We are not going to let one single Israeli escape Masada. So we're building this wall first. And then we'll attack the fortress. But no one's getting out of here alive. And then they build their legions. You see that big square. And you see the other one on top of that. There's like seven or eight of these big squares that completely surround Masada. And this is where each of the legions of Roman soldiers would stay. They lay siege to Masada for two years. It takes them two years to build a rampart. I think I have a picture of this. This is the rampart on the back side of it. This rampart is 180 feet high. It takes them two years to build. And when they finally get it this height, now they're ready to attack the city. There's no telling how many thousands of Roman soldiers lost their life. Because as they would work on this, the Israelis would rain down rocks and boulders on top of them to kill them. Finally, in AD 73, they are high enough to breach the wall. And what happens next is a bit of a controversy. According to Roman historians, what happens next is that all 960 Israelis that were on top of the wall were murdered and killed, except for two women and their three children. According to Jewish history, it happened a little bit differently than that. 
According to Jewish history, the whole reason the Sakari, the zealots, took over Masada was because they felt like it was better to live free than t- or die than to be a Roman slave. So they had their motto, live free or die. In fact, that's still the motto of Israel today, live free or die. So according to Jewish historians, what happens next is as the ramparts are built and the Romans are beginning to come into the city, the zealots drew lots. The zealot soldiers drew lots as to what families they were going to be responsible for murdering since suicide was against Jewish tradition. And that these soldiers killed 960, all of them. And only two women and three children survived because they hid in a cistern. Either way, this is a cistern. This is the look of the cistern. And it sneaks around and goes deeper into the mountain. Either way, this picture of Masada and this motto of live free or die, this is still the number one symbol of Israel. This is the number one tourist attraction in Israel. This is the one thing that every Israeli wants you to see when you come to Israel. Have you been to Masada? Have you been to Masada? This is part of the ethos of who they are, to live free or die. Interesting, interesting. One more little stop, and then we're going to tie some of these together. From Masada, it's a 30-mile drive, but close to an hour in, uh, in time to Jerusalem. And you drive through the desert side, and then you come up to Jerusalem, which sits on a plateau. And next week, I'm going to dive more into Jerusalem, but there's one story that I need to tell because it relates to kind of what's going on in, that we have in the desert. If you remember, I'm going to bring back up some more Israeli history here. Uh, Around 900 is when Israel has the civil war and they're split into two kingdoms, right? We have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And this happens in 920, I think 921, is that right? 931 BC. And so when this happens, you have a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. If you fast forward 200 years to around 722 BC, Assyria is the world power at this time. Assyria wants to expand their footprint and their domination of the world. So Assyria needs to get to the Jezreel Valley. They need this land of Israel so that they can have trade routes and war routes to Egypt. And Israel is standing in the way, and so is Judah, northern kingdom, Israel, southern southern kingdom, Judah. So Assyria defeats Israel, the northern kingdom, with little problem at all. And as they're defeating the northern kingdom, there's a certain king in Judah called King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah hears of this, and he knows that Jerusalem has a problem. If Jerusalem is going to withstand a siege, they need water. There is not a fresh water source inside the walls of Jerusalem. So if Assyria comes and lays siege to them, they are not going to last long because they do not have enough water. So Hezekiah has a solution. He gets two of his engineers. He sends one of his engineers outside the city walls to a place called the Spring of Gehom. I think we have a picture here. And then inside the city, he finds a place called the Pool of Siloam or Siloam's Pool. And they send two teams and they start in these two places and they dig down until they, and then they come across and they end up meeting each other in the middle. So that now they have an underground spring water source inside the city. And so when Assyria comes in 720, and she does, and they lead siege to Jerusalem, they cannot defeat Jerusalem. Jerusalem outlasts them and defeats Assyria because they have spring water. They have water to this film. We got to walk in that tunnel where the spring is. So I'm going to show you a couple of videos. Uh, and I want you to listen carefully, listen carefully to the screams that you're about to hear. Sun found out before any of us did that that spring water is around 55 degrees. <laughs> it was cold. Uh, and the water fluctuates in its depth from up to our waist to about ankle deep. 
This is 1,700 feet of tunnel, just like this. Most of it's about the width of my shoulders. Some of it is not. <laughs> uh, most of it I could stand up in. There is about a couple of hundred feet that I had to duck, and I had to kind of had to duck walk through it. 1,700 feet took us about 35 minutes, 30 minutes to walk through it, somewhere in there, maybe, give or take. It's all a blur when it's in the dark. Uh, it, was, it was fascinating walk. Uh, and the tunnel ends inside the city walls into the pool of Siloam. I think I have a picture of that, right? This, by the way, is the pool. And this all happens in 720. So this pool, by the way, uh, is the pool that when Jesus heals a blind man and he makes the spitballs of mud and he puts it on the guy's face, remember this story? And he tells them, go wash off in the pool of Siloam. This is that pool that that guy washes his face in. So how does all of this relate? How do all of these stories, how did these three days that we get to spend here, this two and a half, three days journey that we did, what is all this like? One of the the points of why we wanted to go through this uh, big trip with you is so that you could, obviously the scripture would come alive to you, but that you would also maybe experience some of the holy moments that we got to experience. And during these three days, or during these three little segments, one of the holy moments that happened to us was when the tour guide kind of finally set us down through this and went, listen, I want you to think about some of the things that you're experiencing. And the first thing he said to us is this, the desert is a place that people flee to. In other words, the, 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 the desert is not a place where people choose to live. The desert is a place where people run to. They're running away from something. Now, maybe the something that they're running away is, is, is of their own choice. Like they've, they've, they've made decisions and now they have to run to the desert to get away from it. Maybe they're running to the desert because a circumstance or a situation has changed and it's made it untenable for them to stay where they are and they have to leave. And the only place they know where they can leave and escape is the desert. Sometimes they have to run to the desert because of the sins and the choices of other people that force them to go to the desert. But the desert is not a place where people choose to go and go, oh, this is going to be my vacation home. Oh, this is where I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy spending time in the desert. And the reason people don't choose to go to the desert, but that it's a place where you flee, is that in order to survive the desert, you need a miracle. It is impossible to survive in the desert. You have to have, specifically, the miracle of water. You have to have water. If you don't have water, you don't survive. You can't survive in the desert more than two or three days without a miracle. And this is the role that the wilderness, that the desert plays in the life of of Jews, in the life of Israelis, is that it has to be a miracle in order to survive the desert. And God, here's the third thing, God seems to do some of his best work in the desert. The, The very place that most of us try to avoid with every single bit of our being is also the place where God does his best work. And the reason is simply this, it's in the desert that all of those things that we think are important, they're stripped away to where we have to come face to face with the one thing that is important, and that is my survival. What is it that I need to survive? It's water. I have to have water. If I have water, I can withstand heat. If I have water, I can go without food. If I have water... I can make it. And the question that hit us is that when you're in your own desert, what is your water? What's your water? There's a reason why Jesus, as he's walking in the Judean wilderness, there's a reason as he's talking with his people that he says, I am the living water. I'm the living water. I'm the water. I'm the only water you need. And the desert forces us to slow down and stop and ask the question, what water am I trusting to get me out of the desert? 
And is that the living water that Jesus says he is? I think it's a question we need to wrestle with as all of us face our own deserts. And if you haven't faced one yet, (laughs) you will. Everyone goes to the desert at some point. And what's gonna be your water? If you're not sure about that answer, if you're not sure about how to deal with that question, I'd love to have the opportunity to hear your story and to have a conversation about that. So hit me up. Who's your water? It's one of the moments that I'll never forget in the whole journey. All right, we got a few minutes here. So what kind of questions do we have? Yeah, we'll start with this one. Um, So you're talking about the desert. Uh, Have you been through the desert on a horse with no name? (laughs) I have. Okay. Yes, I had to get out of the rain. (laughs) Um, Serious question here. Um, Did they talk at all about why the Dead Sea is so salty? Like what makes it? Yeah, the tour guide didn't, but fortunately I had Google. So, um, yeah, so the... That sits at, you know, 1,300 feet below sea level. And so the ground there has all of these core, um, you know, minerals in it. It's, it's just a real minerally dense soil. And so as the water comes into that place, it just saturates that water. So it just makes it super, super salty. Nothing grows over there. And I, I'm going to chase this little rabbit. We learned this. The Dead Sea is shrinking. Uh, it's shrinking around a foot a year. And, and so... Um, Amy's dad uh, has pictures of the Dead Sea when he was there in 1966, 1967. It was right before the Six-Day War. And I mean, it's just, it's just shrinking. Uh, the, the road that we were on in his day, the water was right up against it. And the road, when we have our picture, the water is, is probably a good thousand feet away from the shoreline. Uh, and so depending on who you talk to, this is either no big deal or a travesty. Um, you know, that needs immediate solution. Uh, some environmentalists feel like it's a tragedy. You're losing a natural uh, resource, a wonder of the world, so to speak. Uh, there are those that are actually live in the land go, yeah, but nothing can grow here. So we're diverting all of the water that's coming from the Jordan River and we're making farms and agriculture. And so it's a pretty hotly contested debate. Um, when you guys went to Bethlehem, did you get to go see the manger where they think Jesus was born? Yeah, Bethlehem. Um, I'm not going to talk about Bethlehem. Uh, and I know someone has told me that they're really disappointed in me because we're not going to talk about Bethlehem. So let me just kind of give you why I'm not going to talk about Bethlehem. Um, Bethlehem is in Palestine controlled, And it was very apparent from the minute that we walked there that as Americans, we were not wanted. Uh, as a matter of fact, if we got hit by a bus, I'm not sure they'd stop traffic. I mean, I just was like, listen, this, right? Uh, but the second thing is you go to the church in the nativity and it's inside a cave. And so um, there was just a lot of things that happened that I was like, so, you know, the nativity that we all have at our, you know, we have like the little barn and we've got like the little manger where Jesus is. Yeah, none of that's true. Uh, inside a cave, all of Bethlehem, all of the stables where they would keep the animals are in caves. They're all in caves. And the manger that Jesus was in was a stone food trough. Like it's just a, it's just a stone basin and that's where he would have been. Uh, and then the cave that Mary and Joseph, that they say that they were in, you go into the cave and you crawl down some steps and then you go around the corner and then it's just this little hole in the wall. It's like about as, I mean, it's about as big as that little area right there on the stage. That's it. That's, that's what it is. And... It's dark because there's no light because it's in a cave. Are you following all that? It was really anticlimactic. It was like there was no holy night. There was no angel singing. There was no light. I mean, there was none of that that happened. It was like, okay, cool. And when you realize that there's like three different churches in the church of nativity, there are three different denominations and they all hate each other. Like if you Google church of the nativity fight, this is going to be your homework assignment. Go home, Google church of nativity fight. There are two priests in there that are fighting in the church of nativity at the place where Jesus is born because one of them says, that's your side to clean up. It's like having two siblings in the room going, now this is your side of the room. This is my side of the room. You pick up your stuff. stuff." Anyway, that was a really big rabbit. Sorry. 
We'll end with this one. So you talked about how Masada is kind of this image, this symbol for um, their identity. Um, today, do, from what you could tell, could, do many of the Israeli people still kind of see themselves as a chosen people of God? Uh, great, great question. Um, so I'm not sure how to answer that other than this. Um, the political context over there, um, whatever I thought I knew and I understood before I went over there, actually being over there and listening to people who are living in it just made it really complicated. And I don't know if it cleared up anything other than this. Uh, you have secular Jews who identify themselves as Jews only nationally. They do not see themselves as religious Jews. They, they see it as their nation. They see it as, a, like we would say, American, okay? Uh, so for them, the phrase of God's chosen people doesn't mean anything to them. Uh, reclaiming the temple mount for the temple, not important to them. Um, some of these holy sites, it's important for tourism, not so much as so important for their faith. And that's about 75% of the country. Uh, you've got about 20% of the country that's Muslim. They're Palestine, they identify as Palestinian, right? Now, of that 20%, probably about 18% of them get along just fine. The mosque is there. The Israelis have no plans of taking over the mosque and rebuilding a temple. They have their places of worship. They just want to live in peace. They just want to live in the land of their forefathers in peace. Uh, and then you've got about 5 or 10% on each side that literally absolutely hate each other. And every single thing is a fight between these two extremes. And then in the middle of that, you've got Christians who some of them identify with the Palestinian side, some of them identify with the Jewish side. And again, it's seeking the peace of Jerusalem, seeking the peace. A vast majority of people want to seek the peace of the city, want to seek the peace. How do you do that when you have all of these different nationalities? So vastly, the short answer to that is no. Most of them do not see themselves as God-chosen nation. That's not a phrase they would identify with. Um, however, Hasidic and traditional Jews do, and that's why the temple and the Western Wall is so important to them, because that will be where the Messiah reveals himself. So that's a lot, isn't it? Well, next week, we're going to step into this question a little bit deeper uh, as we got to spend three or four days there in Jerusalem and got to explore this a little bit deeper in some of the places. And so that's next week. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll have our blessing. Father, thank you for your story. Thank you for this land, this fifth gospel that screams your existence, that attests to who you are. Father, I pray for, for just a moment for those of us that are in our desert. And it's not a place that we chose. It's not a place where we even want to be. But it's a place where you're trying to speak. It's a place where you're trying to, to whisper and to nudge. Father, for those of us in our desert, would you reveal to us what our water is that we're trusting in? And if that water isn't the living water of Jesus, would you protect us from that and instead give us the living water? And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you stand with me, we'll do our blessing. In Christ, you go nowhere alone. Wherever you go, God is there. Wherever you are, God can work through you, and he gives purpose for your being there. Christ, who dwells in you, has something to do through you where you are. Believe this and go in his grace, love, and power. Go be the church.